Welcome, welcome. This is Urban Nature, a new podcast from Istanbul 74. I'm Gabriel Koslovsky. I am a Brazilian architect and curator. I work on urbanization from the perspective of political ecology. And in Urban Nature, I talk to prominent thinkers who have been pushing the boundaries of how we understand the relationship between humans and the natural environment. Today, I have the biggest pleasure to talk to Susanna Hecht. Susanna is a geographer and professor of urban planning at UCLA. She's one of the founder thinkers of the field we now recognize as political ecology. With the Amazon rainforest at the center of her research, Susanna has dealt with questions pertaining the institutional dynamics of deforestation, the corporate frontiers of cattle and export commodity agriculture, power relations around land use change, and social and environmental justice. Susanna has published widely with highly read articles in The Nation, The New Left Review, and Fortune Magazine, and influential books in cultural geography, including The Scramble for the Amazon and The Lost Paradise of Euclides da Cunha, and The Fate of the Forest, Developers, Destroyers, and Defenders of the Amazon. In 2018, she was awarded the prestigious David Livingstone Centenary Medal of the American Geographical Society. Susanna, I'm very happy to have you here. It's a great honor. Thank you for coming today. I'm delighted to be here. And what could be more fun to, for me than to uh, talk a lot about the Amazon as a kind of major disruptor in how we might think, as well as, of course, now what happens there is a planetary disruptor as well. Exactly. So I, I wanted to start our conversation today um, going back to 1975 when you first went to the Amazon Basin. So um, that, that's uh, what triggered actually your, your study of the Amazon and how was this initial encounter with that place? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, I, I went to the University of Chicago as an undergraduate and one of the things that uh, at that time you had were really, really cold winters. You still have them, but it's a little different now. And um, one of the things, so I, I was studying ecology with the excellent ecologists. They had a, a sort of stable of wonderful tropical ecologists. And then they also had a bunch of wonderful historians uh, of Latin America. And I won't go through all the names, but, um, you couldn't ask for a more deliriously uh, stimulating group of, of scholars. So I would go to my ecology class and they would be talking about Central America and the Amazon and stuff like that and diversity and complexity and so on and all these ecological concepts. And then I would go across to my Latin American history. Um, my And that was also talking about Central America and the Amazon and so, so uh, Brazil's development and so on. So, but um, one of the things uh, when a particularly cold blast of air seemed to hit my third eye, I had the insight, which was, well, um, they're talking about the same place and talking about it as though there had never been any people there. And if people were there, they were kind of interlocutors. Um, they were the historians were talking about the dynamics and history of this place, its colonial history, its prehistory, pre-Columbian history, as though there were no biotics there. 
-hmm. So in a certain sense, they were in completely different worlds, but spatially they were talking about the same place. Mm -hmm. So at this moment, I said, well, and you know, on, only a, a, um, an undergraduate of mm -hmm. uh, immense ambition would say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll bring these two forms of thought together as they unfold in this spatial place known as the American tropics. So uh, from that point of view, um, uh, you know, I thought, well, this is a, you know, this, this will be a snap. Um, of course, that's on, only the arrogance of youth that would ever say anything like that. But still, um, it, it gave me this sort of idea of the conditions of possibility. So after graduating, I spent a year playing chess. I know this seems odd, but um, but chess allows you a lot of time to think about things. And so I was a waitress and basically played chess for a year while I figured out how to uh, how to integrate these questions. Um, and so this led me to apply to graduate school at the University of California at Berkeley in the geography department. Now, that was an extremely unsiloed place compared to where I had been. Mm -hmm. So the geography department linked very strongly with the history department. Um, Carl Sauer, the early Spanish Maine, somehow that you couldn't understand anything about the world, about its geography, about domestication, about its qualities without understanding its history. It also had a very strong interest in indigenous knowledge systems and what we might call alternative systems. And the person here who was trained there um, was Bill Denevin and who was his person there was uh, uh, Professor Parsons who worked in Columbia. Now, what you had was a, a, a recognition that there were, you had to understand ethnography, you under, had to understand um, uh, history, and you had to understand the processes of uh, historical change that reflected in biotic change. So in a certain sense, this was a place where you could go and study with foresters, you could study with soil scientists, and of course they had very strong relations with the anthropology department and the history department. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, I'd gone from a place where the historians and the ecologists would probably never talk to each other to a place where everybody was talking to each other constantly. Um, who was my um, PhD advisor there was a person named Hilgard O'Reilly Sternberg. And he was a specialist on Amazonian hydrology, um, but he was very attuned to the questions of large scale land use change, which of course, James Parsons, Bill Denovan, and also Hilgard Sternberg were very engaged with because in 1964, there had been this moment of um, uh, concerted entrance into Amazonia mm -hmm. through the geopolitical concerns of the Brazilian military. The Brazilian military had always, always been interested in the Amazon. Um, as we know from Euclides da Cunha. Yes. But um, what was different this time was it would proceed as a strategically conducted war, to quote one of the great generals of this, um, of this time. So they began with a very, this was one of the key 
justifying dynamics of the military regime was to modernize Brazil, but also to integrate Amazonia into a sort of triumphalist modernism that would change it from being a sort of lost, uh, a lost paradise into being the beating heart of the continent. So in a certain sense, their imaginary now incarnated in Jair Bolsonaro still uh, lives on in the form of road building of massive, um, of massive intervention and also the idea that the forest is the obstacle to development, not the, how shall we say, stimulus to alternative developments, or as we also like to say in California and everywhere else that's involved in the internet as a platform for development. That is rather the sort of universalist idea of monocultures, um, um, uniformity, universalism, and a particular relation to nature, the domination of nature rather than working with nature would be the underlying system. And rather than the sort of revanchist business of trying to deal with forests. So that, that, was, uh, that was sort of the first step. Mm -hmm. when, I, um, I, when I first went down, of course, you've inhabited Amazonia with so much of your fantasies. When you first get there, you're kind of rubbing your eyes because it's not exactly like what you thought. But what was very clear in my first foray there um, as I was sort of you know, going around was that this sort of strange phenomena of livestock expansion was the driving, was the driving dynamic. Mm -hmm. And much of it, it was complicated because some of it was corporate, um, but a lot of it was speculative. And what was also key about it is that, let's just face it, livestock have been the sort of key to land grabbing in South America for the last 500 years. So colonialism in Brazil and particularly in the humid tropics has always had a kind of a bovine face. And when you think of your experience back then and compare to the Amazon we see today, so what are the main changes that you perceived after the span of almost, almost 50 years actually of engagement with the region? Is the Amazon still that uh, frontier zone that... Um, that uh, there, there's so a couple of things that I would say about that. First of all, now I would never think of Amazonia as being a frontier. It was actually not really ever a frontier. Mm -hmm. The frontier is a kind of an ideologic or discursive framing that allows you to imagine um, a void that uh, lives in a kind of a different universe from the, how shall we say, the development tsunami. Let's just put it like that. So, but actually Amazonia has been a major center of civilizations. Um, it has been a major area with large scale urban structures and linkages between these structures. You can think of the Arawak empires as stretching from the Andes to Florida. That ideology of frontier is the ideology of conquest. And it, it doesn't reflect a reality. It's a discursive way of creating a boundary. So what it does is the, the frontier basically says, 
there's no real civilization on the other side of this. Um, we are the civilization and we'll just come to the frontier. We'll change the way it integrates into the world through our systems, but not really ever understanding both the sort of, how shall we say, subterranean systems, the systems below the obvious, and also without really recognizing that they were coming into a kind of different, different civilizational framework. But do you think what you saw back then and what we see now, has it changed a lot? Oh, yeah. Uh, back to your question. I'm so obsessive about the use of frontiers. Oh, but I think it's um, great to explain this because frontier is used so often. And, and in fact, it's a completely abstract construct. It doesn't even correspond to what's there. Um, one of the, the central thing that has happened is we might sort of say, well, there's a couple of things. Um, end of the mid-century authoritarian period in 1988 with the um, extension of the, um, the, the development of the constitutions and the elements of the Brazilian constitution get put into a lot of the other Amazonian countries' um, constitutions. It recognized land rights of indigenous populations, of quilombolas, of traditional uh, peoples of many kinds. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's composed not within sort of capitalist private property regimes, but an, an array of different kinds of land rights and ways of, um, of controlling resources and land. So one of the things that's really important is that you begin to see a codification of different property regimes, not just, um, and not just the sort of private property things. So that is becomes very important. With that, of course, you get also the rise of a lot of social movements. So with the opening, you really do see the rise of sort of democratic movements, political movements, claiming rights, claiming history, and using history as a way to claim lands and uh, patrimonies, if you will, as a way of defining territories. So in a certain sense, you have a kind of historical ecology that gets mobilized in order to um, uh, uh, ascertain traditional territories. And these become very important in both the conservation and conflict in Amazonia, as we can imagine. Um, one of the things that you see now, which you saw then, but not quite to the same degree, is the real extraordinary rise of the clandestine economies of gold, of timber, um, and of uh, land grabbing. So even though the contested uh, uh, titling is a long and um, distinguished historical process, um, it is accelerated. Um, the other thing you have in 19, um, I like to say the long 1988, you have the fall of the Soviet empire, fall of the, um, which actually is 1992, but the fall of the Berlin wall, which signifies, if you will, the end of history. Um, well, no, not really, but of course, but um, it represents a sort of shift, a kind of a large scale geopolitical and ideological shift that has lots of implications. The next thing that you see is also by 1990, um, the entrance of China into the WTO. And one of the things that happens in that period 
is that you get in the same way that many places got a so-called China shock, so did Brazil. So the model of import substitution and industrial modernization that had been part of the uh, procedure before starts to unravel because of the openness of the um, the openness of the trade uh, regime and the the rise of Chinese. Um, Chinese imports that basically um, start a kind of deindustrialization of um, of Brazil and lots of the surrounding countries. So you get a real uh, shift in this, but you also see the expansion of Chinese markets, and one of that that's reflected in pretty much overall that China, within the space of a decade, becomes. Um, Brazil's uh, and, and many other countries' main trading partner. Mm -hmm. So the shift from American hegemony into Chinese economic hegemony and investment is a massive shift at this time. The other thing is that Amazonia starts to get its first soy plantations in the 1990s. One of the things that the Brazilian military had done is invest a lot in training geneticists, and um, uh, people, techni technical people of many kinds. Um, uh, and so one of, you know, the, the Midwestern universities were chock-a-block with a bunch of uh, Brazilian scholars who would be learning genetics and so on. Well, they were able to develop the soybean that can handle these lousy soils and also tolerate the uniformity of day length and so on, and also bred for uniformity in the seed itself so it could be processed in a particular way. And so what you begin to see in that early 1990s is the expansion of soybean. It's hard to imagine that soybean didn't exist before, but um, uh, particularly given its prominence now, but there was quite a bit of experimentation also with things like oil palm uh, which now is becoming more and more important in Amazonian development, particularly in the Western Amazon. So the world entering the world, the oil, the global oil seed commodity market with a vengeance and with these GMO um, uh, uh, plants that also later become these pre adapted to pre-emergent uh, herbicides means that suddenly Amazonia, which one always thinks of as kind of pristine place, becomes an extraordinarily toxic place because of the use of glyphosate and drenching these areas in glyphosate. There's a lot of drift, it's an herbicide. So it kills, you know, it kills plants and then uh, that are not adapted to being drenched by it. And it also kills a lot of, uh, uh, animals in the river, it kills a lot of animals on the land. So it's a, quite a toxic little uh, enterprise. Whether, whether eating GMO stuff is bad for people is another set of debates. It certainly is a carcinogen, but we don't really have the public health um, information on that. But one of the, so my big point here is that you're getting a huge structural shift that begins to occur around global commodities. With the livestock sector, it still remains one of the mechanisms through which you get clearing through claiming. 
this process has, of course, accelerated very much under, under the Bolsonaro regime, where amnesty for previously cleared land is given as opposed to treating clearing land that is not titled correctly um, or titled to be that um, is, uh, was treated as an environmental crime. So we have, we have these kinds of things that go on in the production realm. The other thing is the sort of creation of a livestock system that could move into international markets, which means that you had to control hoof and mouth disease, which is called aftosa. And once you got the certification to be able to do that, then Amazonian beef could start to move into international uh, beef commodity markets. So while Europeans may boycott this, um, the, the Chinese and South Asians don't, nor does the Middle East. So as dietary things have changed, the demand for Amazonian beef has increased, both as a, as a function of um, changing diets, but also as investment in um, uh, this whole dynamic of regional occupation. So this whole thing of integration into both national economies and global economies is largely achieved uh, in the first instance through deforesting large areas of land for livestock production. I'm always amazed when I look at the stats on the production of black cattle that there are some areas where it's become more intensive, but for the most part, it still maintains one animal unit per hectare. So it's probably the most environmentally costly activity that you can imagine. Um, so that sort of continues. Um, what you also see is an explosive urbanization. Um, Amazonia is about, the Brazilian Amazon is about 80% urban. So while we think of it as a kind of, you know, rural frontier with Indians and you know, people going around in canoes and stuff. I mean, they are there, but um, what is the dominant settlement pattern is urban. It's been an area of experimentation, a planning experimental terrain. So you see a lot of settlements that have gone in, the, uh, the agrarian reform settlements, the settlements along the expanding, um, uh, the expanding road network, so those have been also stimulated and not given very much good technical background um, and training, and certainly not with a focus very much on agroforestry systems, which would sustain both households and uh, landscapes to a better degree. So that has changed a lot. So what you see is that there really is this dynamic of sort of um, expansion of clearing zones. Now, you and I both know that during 2004 to 2012, deforestation declined by something like 80%. So what we know is that you can get a lock on Amazonian deforestation, although it has to be said, you do that with leakage to other forest systems like the Chiquitania in Bolivia, the Chaco in Argentina, and of course, the Cerrado. So it's an iconic landscape, but just because you can do conservation in it doesn't mean that all forests are safe. In fact, many forests became much more vulnerable 
because they didn't have the social movements or, um, or the um, uh, uh, environmental regulations that controlled it. Another big thing that happened in this period is the creation of what we might call environmental institutions, mm -hmm. IMAMA, um, the, the ARPA system and so on. These are conservation areas of various kinds and including inhabited areas. So those uh, have really exploded to such a degree that really about, a, if you look at a map on, of, of clearing on the Amazon, what you see is these areas that were put into play in the 2004 period um, and to about 2014 really represent a lot of consolidation of uh, complex conservation areas that have people in them. So this was, an, and the development of a regulation capacity that becomes very important. Mm -hmm. So another thing, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a long time. So um, it's a lifetime really, a generation. One of the things that becomes really important is what we might call the scientization of the Amazon mm -hmm. and the use of remote sensing to understand the processes that occur there. So that becomes really a, a mechanism that you can use in real time to ascertain how much land is being converted. It's hard to imagine that you had to try and figure this out through land, you know, production statistics where there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, how should we say, there's a lot of leakages, a lot of stuff you don't see. But mm -hmm. the whole rise of the use of remote sensing and satellite um, imagery to understand the dynamics of change completely altered the way <clears throat> that we apprehend Amazonia. Mm -hmm. uh, one more thing, which is also the rise of an expanded understanding of the archaeology of Amazonia mm -hmm. and um, understanding its pre-Columbian and how shall we say hidden histories, which has really made a difference in terms of how people think about Amazonia who are trying to um, understand it at, in its historical trajectory. And, and now just final, one, my final point uh, on, this, on this topic, the recognition of Amazonia as one of the key tipping points in planetary ecology and cl planetary climate change. So what this means is that if the Amazon tips, it is one of the most inhabited um, areas where climate change will have dire, broader planetary consequences. So understanding it as one of the drivers and, and uh, acupressure points and tipping points in the global climate regime has been extremely important. And that's also something that has arisen really in the last, actually since the 2000s. Thank you. Um... You mentioned the, the ancient civilizations. And personally, I'm very interested in understanding this intersection between anthropogenic and natural ecosystems, especially when it, when it pertains to ideas of urbanization and ideas of domestication of nature, right? And the Amazon is a fascinating mm -hmm. site for that. We had this article published in Nature by archaeologist uh, Heiko Prumers and his colleagues where they, they, mm -hmm. they use LIDAR in Bolivian Amazon, right? They in fact detected the presence of remarkably complex and large settlements 
linked to the, to the system of, of uh, roads and massive water management infrastructure. There were these clear signs of uh, human modified landscapes, even with pyramids, right? And this plugs, as you mentioned in previous works, and I think here uh, quickly of uh, Michael uh, Heckenberger with his uh, pre-Columbian Amazonian urbanism, which completely deconstructs the idea of, of the Amazon as this pristine landscape that you mentioned. Um, and so how, how do you see these uh, new findings or, or better, how do they, how do these findings impact the ways in which we relate to the region? Well, first of all, I think maybe it's good to just step back and, and imagine some of the sort of scientific and ideological framing of Amazonia before, which was the sort of Betty Megger's hypothesis that you could never develop complex societies in the Amazon because the soils were so crappy. And so the sort of semi-nomadic or nomadic populations that they imagined, um, and they didn't even, you know, it's not like they really um, made a lot of effort to do much of, by the way of ethnography. But um, basically what they argued is that if you had anything that looked complex, it was, you know, sort of stuff that had come down the Andes. So that uh, autochthonous emergent complex societies could never have developed because the soils were lousy. Um, remember that it, it's, well, it, there's many, many debates about when, when the Anthropocene begins in Amazonia. Let's just take for a moment, you know, 14,000 years ago. So basically you've had, uh, you know, quite some time in which to interact with this environment. So one of the things that, that um, the, the work really of also Eduardo Neves, of um, Denise Sean, Jose Iriarte. There's a lot of, it's one of the most dynamic areas in, in ethnography mm -hmm. and it completely changes how we might understand these areas, not as empty areas with primitive tribes, the sort of tribes who run from man at the people at the ends of the earth and the beginning of time. And then you also had the the work of um, uh, you know the fierce people you know the idea that basically not only were they primitive but they were kind of violent and so it would kind of be good for them to be civilized you know indigenous populations and they didn't really you know they just have a take a bunch of snuff and um, then have these you know battles amongst themselves so the the thing that archaeology has done is completely turn these models, you know, Shagnon and Megger's framing of Amazonian settlement and Amazonian cultures really on their head. Most people, and, and even if you look at something like Julian Stewart's thing uh, in the 1940s on Handbook of South American Indians, it really doesn't respond very well to much of the realities and there isn't very much discussion of the fact that somehow the place was full of artistic masterpieces and you know and you know finely worked gold and some of the earliest and most beautiful pottery in the in the world. Yes. Um, so what the archaeology has done, and it's been a you know a labor of a great deal of time to work out these questions about regional archaeologies. So there's a couple of things that become key in this. 
One is the creation of Amazon, what's called Amazonian dark earths, the terra preta. Mm -hmm. um, the other is again, the starting to be able to use remote sensing to start to see things a little bit better. The emergence of historical ecology, which basically starts to, as um, ecologists go and look at the kinds of diversity that you see, you start to see a different kind of landscape than just like, oh, it's just a bunch of diverse trees, um, that you start to see kind of agglomerations of useful species spread out throughout Amazonia. So, and then also you begin to, to move a little bit away from what had been the sort of style of anthropology in Amazonia, which looked at its uh, symbolic functions and so on, uh, and you know the its its internal politics, and looked more at the um, interaction with nature, not in terms of symbolism, but in terms of actual practices. Mm -hmm. So, who was very key in this was a person that I worked with. Daryl Posey, no longer in this incarnation. So there were a bunch of people who were starting to look at really the uh, uh, ecology of production systems. And again, this gets us back to Bill Denovan and his students. It gets us back to a couple of institutions, University of Michigan, Berkeley, um, you know, a few places that began to start having people look at how land use, how indigenous populations shaped land use. Mm -hmm. Now I worked with Daryl and what we were looking at was soil management because after all that hypothesis of, you know, soils culture couldn't possibly emerge in Amazonia. And what we kept finding was, first of all, there was a lot of char going on in that landscape. The model of the deforestation, burn, throw in your crops and then you let it fallow really wasn't what was being elaborated. What was what they would say and said all the time is, well, we have that, that you know, annual cropping stuff so that we can put into place the forest that we prefer. Mm. So what you began to see was not land abandonment after agriculture, but rather much more manipulation over time. One of the other things about this manipulation involved a great deal of the use of controlled fire. So the whole issue about fire management is not the kind of pyrocene that we have now, but a kind of ecological management of fire, which we also get here in the United States and especially in California, which is a very flammable landscape um, in the management uh, and control of fire so it doesn't get out of hand. The other thing is the use and creation of biochar areas of intensive charring that basically produces uh, these uh, Amazonian black earths over time. And they're very stable. They hold their nutrients over time. They um, are extremely fertile and um, basically provide a kind of uh, high quality substrate um, for production. Now we know that anthropogenic interven intervention into landscapes can really change the productivity. So we might think of things like um, uh, terraces, agricultural terraces. We know that from antiquity forward, the use of terraces has really changed production. We know also that intervention in things like water management, irrigation can really change production. 
They do so in areas where you would say, you can't grow anything in those mountains or you can't grow anything in those deserts because you can't have high civilizations there. Although of course you had high civilizations there, but they were based on these systems of uh, terraces and irrigation. The analog for the humid tropics of Amazonia is the creation of Terra Preta. So it basically becomes the, um, the uh, functional agrarian agricultural base for production of various kinds of short-term nutrient demanding crops on which you can build your civilization. But it's important to also say that this is a system that is not so dependent on annual cropping system. It's dependent on things like trees and tubers. That is that things that don't require the kind of uh, coordinated harvesting, coordinated planting and so on that you see in grain agricultural systems. So in a certain sense, um, the idea of foraging and moving through the landscape is at least as important. But I want to reemphasize that both the creation of terra preta, which keeps us in the soil framework, but also the creation of the landscape, which should not be diminished in terms of its importance, really gives us a production base, a production understanding off of which you could create um, complex societies. And this is not even counting the complex um, water management, fisheries management, animal management that went on through these ideas of domesticated landscapes rather than simply domesticated species. I saw that in a conversation that, um, that you had about your work in El Salvador, you said that mm -hmm. um, you were always a bit surprised to see how some conservationists didn't um, uh, count secondary forests as real forests, that they see these forests as almost ahistorical or and an apolitical, which where in fact forests are just just not right. And somewhere you mentioned that there's no such thing as a primary forest. It's all secondary forests. This means that human footprint is everywhere, and that what we call nature has been modified by humans and vice versa since since forever actually. So can you talk a bit more about that, please? Well, I think that we can, in the, in the new world, we can certainly, and, and in the South American part of it, we can certainly talk about it being at least, for, the Anthropocene there is 14,000 years old. The thing about secondary forest is a little bit the, the narrative, the, the problematic narrative that you would get. Uh, again, I'm gonna take my Central American history back in into, uh, 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 bring it up again, which is remember that most of the um, uh, tropical scientists trained in Costa Rica, a lot of them trained in Costa Rica at La Selva. So there, and there are a few other areas like little um, research outposts of particular kinds that used laboratories and so on, as opposed to this sort of more ethnographic thing that I've just finished describing. What, what that, means is that they sort of stayed within silos. And even in places like La Selva, if you dig a soil pit, which I have done there, you find charcoal and you find potsherds. And also the region itself is full of Mayan uh, and other kinds of pre-Columbian traces of civilization 
particularly in a place like El Salvador, where the the main um, the main um, uh, conservation area actually is on top of all these ruins. So the the point here is to sort of understand that part of it is the sort of uh, love of the pristine. The, the, it's a kind of a Muirist uh, that is pertaining to John Muir idea that really the, um, the most valuable systems, the most complex systems are those that have not experienced the trammeling hand of man. And that if you, those systems are the iconic and good systems and the other ones are, oh, I don't know, they're somehow less virtuous, they incarnate less virtue, they're less complex and so on. It actually isn't the case that they're by definition less complex. And the other thing is that in, you know, if you come out of these systems and there's been, of course, you can imagine some of these debates in Amazonia, there's this, been this argument about um, how they're just, um, you know, the Western Amazon, you know, was really not so trammeled. Some recent data, and not just the Prumer's data, which is fabulous, but um, some work done by Oliver Coombs that just came out, I think, a couple months ago, which basically showed all the GIS localization of uh, archaeological um, whole uh, archaeological sites, and it's immense. So we now have techniques through which we can actually see these things in a much more profound way. And thinking about Central America and the whole LIDAR story, which of course is the, we see this in, in the Amazonian work. Um, the immense cities in, of the Mayan and Aztec and other worlds of the tropics of Central America give a kind of lie to the idea that there was never any human history in these landscapes. They may be old growth forests, but also insofar as you can imagine, they have also been widely used for long historical periods of time. That is, they don't just sit there being forests, they're surrounded by people, they have things going on in them. So one of the things is that if you start to inhabit these environments and not pretend that these are you know, at, at a frontier between civilization and, and nature, but rather as being parts of a longer term um, co-evolution, a socio-environment that is created by both the actions of ecologies and human agency, then it isn't so distressing. Um, the also thing, the other thing I think is important about this is that it gives us a lot of, um, how shall we say, uh, potential new ways of thinking about it. Because if we only have urban areas that don't have nature in it. We have farms that have modified nature and monocultures, and then we have wild nature. It, it, it's a kind of um, carceral model mm -hmm. of human relations to nature. So you're either, you're either in culture or you're in nature. But what we know from Latin America, even something like you know, what is now Mexico City, Tenochtitlan, is the Chinampa system had wild fish in it, it had uh, Chinampas, it had forests on those Chinampas, uh, major urban areas, causeways all over. So you had an integration of both the urban and the wild and the agriculture into 
one in, into a given kind of spatiality. And again, the aquatic world is one in which you can have a lot of and wild animals moving in, in which you also can harvest them in different kinds of ways and using landscape to harvest them as well um, and to hold them in sort of you know artificial lakes and so on. So the thing is that when you start to um, not fetishize the wild, but to start to think of it as the outcome of a different ontology and a different way of being with nature and a different way of understanding nature, mm -hmm. then you start to have the, the, the possibility of rethinking what that relationship might be. So I think the thing is that if we get over, getting, getting over wild nature as a concept is a very helpful way. It's a helpful and hopeful way to kind of think about the potential for recasting this. Also remember that John Muir um, was walking through an area through which the Miwok had been recently expelled. So the landscape that he was extolling as this you know, unparalleled spiritual wild landscape had the marks of human occupation on it for thousands of years. Fantastic. And you also mentioned somewhere, I think it's very related to this, um, to this direction we are going. You also mentioned that forests and humans have a dual, dual identity, at once biological and artifactual, mm -hmm. almost as if they're products of this, um, of this intertwining of human and non-human stories. I find this very powerful because it kind of um, shows us that the um, that what we we take as forests perhaps are are just artifacts that um, that over time have uh, evolved alongside um, a culture, right? In a sense that there's no single uh, isolated or, or or the binary between culture and nature that we we have discussed for so many years. It's actually uh, being deconstructed. So how do we rebuild the nature culture nexus um, that have so much colored our way of acting in the world and that have uh, led to this moment of, of planetary crisis? Well, I think that we could look at this in a couple of ways. One is remember that um, Bruno Latour puts it, there are a lot of actants in human society, that is to say non-human agents that construct our world. But we've just had uh, a virus do a lot of reconstruction uh, of our world um, in the last couple of years. So that's a, that would be what, what, um, what uh, Latour would call an actant, which is that there are non-human things that construct our world. Um, indigenous populations often talk about being in the society of nature and um, uh, you know, this is kind of a tenant of uh, Viveros de Castro and, and Descola, um, among other anthropologists who sort of say, well, actually the boundary between people and nature is not this uh, culture nature thing, but, but that we're all in one society and that we work to support each other. One of the things that I think is interesting, and this again is gets back to like the decade, you know, the decades and big changes in understanding Amazonia. One is the issue of um, environmental services. So what those systems are doing is, 
you know, they're they're working. They're, there's huge amounts of solar energy that comes in there. And essentially, you can sort of see this as a kind of giant energy system that is producing a lot of um, work. That is, those ecosystems are doing, are producing services for us, which we haven't really valued to quite the same degree that we might otherwise, mm -hmm. if we thought about being in the society of nature rather than being the dominators of nature. So the person who's famous for that work is really um, uh, Costanza on value, you know, on 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 the value of ecosystem services, which, if you had to provide them, would be multiple trillions of of dollars, many times the G global GDP. So one of the things is about being sort of friendly with nature, and once you get rid of this dynamic of um, you know the sort of tri the tripart world of urban, ag, and wild, you start to be able to have a kind of more comity within them. So one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that we come through the sort of Baconian science where you break things apart. I guess the other thing I would say too is that our version of, remember that Amazonia is a really dramatic environment. It floods really, you know, 30, 40 feet. Um, it has large amounts of animals that move up and move down these systems. It, it's sitting there generating atmospheric rivers that basically keep both the waters of the Andes and the agriculture of uh, the Southern Cone going. Mm -hmm. So it's sitting there doing a lot of stuff. And I don't know how you would want to start valuing the, the, the water work that Amazonia does on its own. Um, so these are the kinds of questions that are kind of lost in the conceptualization of projects, planning projects that are going forward. And you can see this also in these massive infrastructure development projects that are now afoot. These begin, the project, those grandes projetos begin with the military, um, but they go on to kind of turbocharged with the more recent international investment, including Chinese investment. Yes. And in your work, you, you have already pointed to a dynamic that's observable in the developing world where areas can be densely inhabited and yet increasingly forested, which is a model that go against first the, the historical Euro-American case, right? Where forests have been completely depleted so urbanization can take, take place. But also a second model, which is that that's of uh, pure cons conservationism where some ecologists uh, claim that we should keep our forests intact away from human presence, if that's even possible, which is an approach that um, at many times disregards a crucial social component of those who live within the forest and whose lives depend, depend on this forest, right? And each time more I see or uh, that, there's, that there's no option other than a model in, in which humans and non-humans can thrive together, that forests can be at the same time preserved and productive while sustaining the lives of um, these people. 
So what are the paths that we should take to achieve a future in which this reality of densely inhabited while increasingly forested can become a rule instead of an exception? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I'm thinking of the, uh, um, a person who works at C4, the International Forestry Center in Bogor, um, Crockleton. And he just re recently did a study that, um, I don't know, it just came out a few, a few months ago, mm -hmm. which basically shows how much people are dependent on non-timber forest products. There's been studies that sort of show that globally about 30% of the global population is forest dependent. Actually, we're all forest dependent. It, as long as you know you breathe oxygen, you you know you kind of depend mm -hmm. on plants. Yes. Um, so I mean, there's there's that. But um, I think that one of the things that you see is that you certainly um, in in areas, sort of the processes of suburbanization increasing when they get older, people have more trees. You can see this in kinds of arborization of urban areas so that you can have more trees. There's, you know, there's a lot of pressure for that um, simply because it changes the, the urban heat island effects and also sort of scrubs pollution out of the, out of the air. And, um, you know, it, it, it cools it through, you know, it fixes carbon and so on. So there's all, you're beginning to see these kinds of things. Within tropical cities, of course, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that many of the sort of richer areas that have like lots of high, um, high, high rises and high rise houses have absolutely terrible environmental heat island effects. They're really problematic. Whereas if you go into the sort of lower, lower density, but more, they're still extremely dense, yes. but they're not high rises, but um, there, um, you know, there's the quintal, there's all this sort of growing of food. It's using, particularly in the tropics, um, in, in Amazonia, you see a lot of use of food production within the city in these quintais and along little open areas and so on. So one of the things is that that actually is a very old model that is constantly being recapitulated. The other thing is that um, one of the things that uh, we see now, and you can see it with the work from people like uh, Christine Paddock and others, and you can see it all over Africa as well, is that there is this dynamic of um, multi-sided households. That is, people live part of the time in the city and they live part of the time away from the city. And in Amazonia, that usually means on uh, living in areas in which you're uh, engaged in agroforestry systems. So one of the things is that perhaps we need to be thinking of, also, we are always thinking of stuff coming into the city and of course, the, that's a subsidy from nature that's important to cities and cities sort of consume more than perhaps they should. But on the other hand, what you see in these multi-sided households is that people are also um, using that migra migratory dynamic, which seems to have that sort of semi-nomadic deal that seems to have a long um, historical feature and is also a real strong ethnographic feature of Amazonian uh, populations and even in urban areas like Quitos, you see people moving out into the into their little chakras and so on for part of the year, 
or doing, you know, fishing, depending on different kinds of resources for different kinds of things as part of a bricolage of income formation under the systems of extraordinary economic precarity that we now see in Amazonian cities and elsewhere too. So I, I wouldn't want to say what uh, the future should be for every place, but certainly what you can see is that there are models of urbanization that involve more um, design with nature and particularly with trees and tree planting and tree engagement than the current models that we have. We are getting a lot of pressure in California for densification. Not that we have any control over sprawl at the same time, that's another question, but um, what you see is a kind of interest in like sort of making these areas just, you know, essentially concrete wind corridors without having much by way of vegetation or multifunctionality. I think the thing that we want to keep in mind is that our we need to have systems that do more than one thing. So the agriculture shouldn't just produce, you know, one thing, it should be producing you know, agroforestry systems in the tropics are overproduced. That is the amount of calories they produce per area is often much higher than just a, they would be as a single crop. The other thing is that um, um, if you have a complex production system, it's producing both environmental services, it's producing habitat, it's doing more than one thing, it's multifunctional. And when we think about how we're going to go forward, we really do need to be thinking about, you know, the sort of, how um, oh, it all sounds so, you know, but the green infrastructure is one in which you have multifunctionality. You're not just doing one thing. And we have the habit and planners have the habit of thinking about just one thing, get those electric cars or whatever it happens to be, rather than thinking about the complexity of what the green infrastructure needs to look like. So I think we might be seeing a lot more greening as we, as we go along in these kinds of things because um, uh, we, we'll need to use all the tools in the toolkit. And one of the best things we have are these complex environments. Yes. Another topic I wanted to talk today is uh, you mentioned in the beginning, um, but I think uh, it's an opportunity to, to um, unpack it a little bit, is the question of land. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's, it's um, and, and specifically, because it's so crucial, I think, to, the, to, to understanding the Amazon, right? But specifically mm -hmm. between the dynamic of uh, land use change, cattle ranching, and soybean production. Because um, as you and, and many others have shown, this triad has been associated with the main processes of forest destruction over the, the last decades. decades. And mm -hmm. when we see that land titling has always been so problematic in the region and pastures and livestock, um, they kind of serve the purpose of claiming land while producing or providing these, these, these tax breaks, right? For, for fast mm -hmm. financial gains. An entire industry that's a very violent industry actually has, um, has evolved around land clearing and land speculation in Amazonian lands. So how do you see this, this land problem in the region 
and how central should this be in our discussions if we are to protect our forests? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, there's a lot of, it's not, it, it is one of the, the entryways that is relatively inexpensive for people to engage in. You cut forest, you throw grass, you throw a couple of cattle on. So while it's costly on one level compared to other kinds of land uses, it's, it's relatively cheap. But the other thing that it does is it gives you a valuable asset that has speculative gains. And there's lots of literature now on the differential value of cleared lands versus uh, forested lands. So forested lands are, are not valued in terms of the kinds of environmental services that they could provide, whereas the market value of cleared land mon in monocultures has a particularly high value because it can be transacted in a particular way. So that's one thing. But there are all these institutional rents that drive the speculative thing too. Mm -hmm. So that is the road building, the ability to sort of do uh, off of a trunk road, to have informal mm -hmm. roads, to use that road building as a mechanism to drive deforestation. I think the, the statistics on this are really creepy in that something like, um, you know, 85% of deforestation occurs within five kilometers of a road. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, uh, uh, this is not to say that other kinds of things aren't going on, but also you have cascades, you have the um, um, taking out of valuable timber, building a, a road in to snag the timber and move it out. And then after that, you get sort of the following in of, of clearing for claiming. The other thing is that um, the value of other forest products is not really is not as not is not as high as it should be. So in a certain sense, and it's not subsidized. Mm -hmm. Livestock, you can get credit for. You can get um, development credit. You can get animal credit. You have all this research. You have a lot of things. You can get credit for vaccination and so on. So in a certain sense, it's, it's, it's promoted by various kinds of incentives, not the least of which is that it's clearing large areas for cattle has been entirely decriminalized. That is, mm -hmm. under the, um, it, it was being decriminalized before, but once you take away the regulatory institutions that would have at another time um, fined people for clearing, what you have now is a kind of a, deregulated land situation where clearing for claiming and then speculating on that land um, will allow you to you know capture quite a bit of it allows for quite a bit of capital accumulation mm -hmm. the other thing i think that's important to keep in mind here is that as you get intensive there was there's this idea that's called the borlaug hypothesis after uh, borlaug the famous plant geneticist and he argued that if you intensified, then areas that you would get more off of a given area so that then you wouldn't have to clear other areas so that intensification gave you sort of more conservation value. Um, what, and, and that's an argument that's advanced quite a bit, but the problem is what's called Jevons paradox, which is if you intensify, even with an ex within the context of an expanding demand, hmm. that even though you're intensifying, all that happens is the expansion 
of the intensified land use. Now, what we see happening on the soy in the soy economy is that you do get conversion of pasture land into these more intensive uses, but the driving it, you get a still an expansion of the livestock sector as you go forward because it relocates uh, ahead of the intensification uh, frontier, if I may use the word that I have, you know, <laughs> that I have denied. The other thing is if you look at some of the development, um, regional development programs like Matopiba, which you know is Maranhão, Tocantins, um, uh, Pará and Bahia, um, what you see, no, it's not Pará, it's, it's Piauí. Um, what you see is a dynamic of very, very rapid super support for the expansion of livestock and the expansion of soybean. So that those things are not, um, and these are of course being accelerated now through the demand, Chinese and international demand. And then of course, with the situation in the Ukraine, this is going to disrupt these markets even more, as you know, commodity markets for oil crops are going through the roof. So what you'll see is that uh, these uh, international disruptions, global disruptions are gonna start pushing these things forward more. And in this case, the value of the land becomes more value, valuable. In general, also amongst hedge fund managers and big fund managers, you diversification of the portfolio into land is one of the sort of, is an important feature right now. So that's also something that's uh, driving driving a lot of this deforestation, which is the kind of speculative dynamics um, that you see emerging as a function of um, the greater financialization of the sector. So it's one thing before you used to be able to kind of control deforestation and so on by having credit blackout areas. At this juncture, you can't really control it at all because um, of the nature of the financial entrance into um, both the oil crop and uh, livestock sector and land sector. Mm -hmm. So you have Matopiba on one side, but now you have a macro, or as it's known, the Madeira Abuna Sustainable Development Zone. Mm -hmm. And that area is um, meant to be, there really isn't any conservation um, that is going in there, essentially what you're going to see is an extension of the sort of Rondonia um, um, uh, Mato Grosso soybean model. But their argument is we don't need to do conservation work there because essentially jet, um, uh, the Borlaug hypothesis will mean that we'll, be, we'll have more sustainable development and we won't have the same pressure on forests. Uh, except of course, this is what I call the uh, in, in using bad humor, uh, the 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 big trans point, which is the trans Amazon, the trans Purus, and the transoceanic into into Peru and over the Andes. So this is turning into like sort of a triple a triple threat, the triple alliance, which will be very very destructive. So it kind of bookends Matopiba on one side, on the eastern side, mm -hmm. and um, this sort of trans the trans area on uh, of a macro or the sustainable development zone. But what's important to keep in mind here is that is being promoted as a proof of concept 
for other areas in Amazonia, like Tefe, parts of the Trans-Amazon, and the island of Marajó. So it's going to be used, what it's trying to do is sort of use areas that are attractive for finance as a means of transforming those regions. And the way that they're transformed is through um, basically converting forest into something else. But those areas, as you'll recall, Acre, that whole area was really a lot of conservation areas and also the Purus and Madeira area as well. Mm -hmm. So those areas are basically sort of going to see quite a bit of cultural erasure, sort of like what you saw in one, BR 163 going from mm -hmm. Cuyabá to Santarém. Um, you'll see a lot of erasure of earlier forms, actually legitimated forms through the land occupation before into a kind of you know, a fever of speculation driven by financialization, driven by the roads, driven by international markets for oil crops and beef, and um, the enormous subsidies of various kinds that have gone in to support this model. Mm -hmm. And I would like to expand a bit on this uh, local global dynamic. Um, um, because so elsewhere you mentioned that, and here I'm going to quote, uh, you could say that the Amazon is a kind of refuge for issues unresolved in the national context, like agrarian reform and maldistribution of wealth and power. The battle, the final battle for the Amazon will be played out in political terms, in ways that we are only now beginning to see. Mm -hmm. So um, this, um, these local struggles, and you also argue, and, and now you just reinforce that, that uh, we should not lose sight of macropolitics and, and how major global forces have helped to shape the Amazon we see today. Um, you also re reinforce that uh, the need to understand this interplay between the local and the global uh, which is a position that we see in many studies um, around political ecology. But at the same time, we see a different or kind of a parallel uh, vein or path that tries to distance itself from the global scale or from this macrostructure to solely focus instead um, on the agentic component within the micro. So can you talk about how you view this relation between the local and the global? Well, uh, first of all, we, we have a couple of large scale processes, globalization of ideas, globalization of finance, globalization of commodities, um, globalization of environmental as well as, uh, and, and we're in a kind of a capitalist um, uh, frenzy at this moment. So you can't really, it's very difficult to get away. And also like, let's just say, let's say you needed energy, let's say you needed diesel for your boat or something. Mm -hmm. So you're imbricated into global, global movements at whatever scale you would like. Um, you can't really escape it. Um, teleconnection and so on. Teleconnection in the, in the two terms, one being the climate change stuff, the tel teleconnections where things in one place influence the other. And then telecommunications, which is that information from one place moves around the world in complex ways. So in a certain sense, um, there was, and again, this, this speaks to a kind of late 20th century planning 
planning models that um, pretended like if you just could fix the local, then that would sort of take care of it. This doesn't mean that one doesn't focus or use or think about local processes, but you can't think about them without their being embedded in much larger dynamics. Um, and that those dynamics are meaningful and also that they can shape the local outcomes. So I think the, the it, it's kind of, well, if we just had a really great agroforestry system that would take care of it um, and then everything would be fine. The other thing is that a lot of um, local, local labor and local populations are very dependent on these global on global circuits. And I'm thinking here of something like acai, or we could be thinking of things like cacao, which are really important. You know, they generate a lot of a lot of wealth for a lot of localities. Mm -hmm. But um, the other thing is that the these are global commodities too. And the wealth that they generate if we were only interested in local acai markets, um, then you would not see it as being competitive with soy in the state of Pará, which it is. So you wouldn't see this as a billion dollar potential, which is based on a tree crop that's harvest sustainable and which is harvest, harvested largely by, you know, caboclos and small scale farmers. It's not a big industrial crop. Um, Cacao in Amazonia also a bit like that as well. And there are other things too, um, maca, for example. Anyway, we could go on and on, anderoba. But um, so you don't wanna say we don't wanna have it, we just wanna deal with lo localities because um, that won't necessarily give you what you want. Um, the other thing, as I mentioned, there's populations are much more fluid in Amazonia and they always have been. The mobility and diversity is part of how that Amazonian system operates. The other thing is that we can think about too is that um, you're not going to get out of global dynamics anytime soon. And as I mentioned, I think the Ukrainian war is going to put the geopolitical questions into much sharper perspective vis-a-vis um, -vis the oil crop dynamics. The other thing is people have been using um, drug plants from Amazonia for quite some time. And if it's been one of the major employment sectors in many of the Amazonian Andean countries. So that's another thing. If we wanna take gold, again, I'm not saying that these are all wonderful activities, but if you wanna take gold, it's one of the largest employers in Amazonia. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do if you, if, you've des if, if you have a flailing state that has not been able to generate other kinds of economies because it's, they're all kind of deindustrializing now, um, and you have these sectors that are, generate a lot of employment in, let's say, the clandestine economies or other kinds of tree crop economies, um, they're linked into global markets. If you only say we're just going to be producing for our little village, that you can't go back into that. You, you can't live in that history anymore. Now, you could maybe get a big collapse. We may see a big collapse um, through ecological or economic crisis. Um, we, we don't know.
But given the globalization question, then we also have to ask the planetary question because the kinds of instabilities we see at let's say the global level um, as they play out in Amazonia and as they play out in Amazonian states and the climate change, which is moving very fast in Amazonia, the, the poles and the tropics are really getting the brunt of the um, of climate change. And you know, it's it's intense. So one of the things is if you want to, you you can't you can't jump off the globe at this juncture. You have to be dealing with both the planetary change at a, at a, adapting to that and rethinking one's position in that. And remember that there's a lot of oil production in Amazonia. So if you're interested in controlling emissions, you have to start to say hello to your oil economy. And um, then the other question that emerges in all of these things is that a lot of the employment within Amazonia comes from sectors that are um, have been international and globalized for, in many cases, for hundreds of years, centuries. Exactly. And especially with the importance of the Amazon for the for the regulation of the planetary uh, climate and everything. Mm -hmm. and, and even when we think when we think about the social movements that found in the international um, sphere a sort of um, a place to amplify their voices, right? So there, there has always been this local and global connection when we think about the Amazon. Mm -hmm. So I would like to conclude with a question that uh, per pertains specifically to, to this conversation ab about political equality, because mm -hmm. uh, you're considered one of the, the trailblazers of such, a, such approach. Uh, so I'd like to, to use this opportunity to ask you, um, how do you understand or, or better, what is the best way to, to frame the idea of political ecology and how you see its progression moving forward uh, in the fight of climate change and social justice? If you were to, to summarize what do you understand by political ecology, what would that be? Well, I, I'm going to defer to what Paul Robbins would say that political ecology really reflects a community of practice. And what it argues is that you have to look at history and you have to look at environment, environmental history and that political economy, that is economies have ecological and social consequences. And if you take ecologies as being sort of socially linked, that is their socio-ecologies, then political and economic decisions are disruptive of those in, or supportive of them, depending on how they unfold and how they evolve. So I think it's important to keep in mind that um, political eco ecological choices are being made every day in every community in, you know, in every election about what kind of interaction political economies are going to have with socioecologies. And that is the sort of modern, what I think political ecology is now, sort of the modern nature of environmental practice and questions of environmental and, and climate justice writ large. So political ecology is, um, it's an approach. It's not particularly a theory. It uses lots of different kinds of theory. It's heterodox, 
but also it works across scales. It doesn't, and it has a different kind of scope. So it's not just looking at localities. You can't frame how decisions are made merely in terms of the questions of localities. The sort of MAGA, let's go back. They're, they're in a world that will never reappear. Um, but the people that they make political ecological choices every day that affect all of us all the time. So the point really here is to understand that the world is full of socioecologies. We have movements like environmental justice movements, racial justice movements, climate justice movements, and movements about the quality of life in cities and in rural areas and in areas that are gonna be impacted by really big climate change, whether this is coastal retreat, whether it's hurricanes with increased intensity, whether it's areas that are gonna burn up, we're really in a moment in which the environmental question really is one of political ecology and the communities of practice that are working within the sort of new environmental regime that we're now confronting. Fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. And, well, thank um, you, Gabrielle. We'll be in touch.